Chapter 11. Transcendental Polemic. Heraclitian Meditations. War is the father of all things. With the following reflections, I want to effect a kind of axis rotation within the critical pragmatism that today predominates in epistemology. C.S. Pierce, J. Habermas, K.O. Apple. If it was the achievement of this pragmatic theory of knowledge to have presented the connections between knowledge and interest, theory and praxis from first principles, plausibly and without metaphysical mortgages, it is nonetheless infected, I think, with the weakness of a concept of praxis that is too schematic. The preceding reflections may have made it clear why we cannot be satisfied with an epistemology that, on the one hand, assumes only an a priori interest of the type labour, and on the other a second interest of the type communication or interaction. This is because the polemical strategic dimension worked out here, just as the diametrically opposed dimension of the erotic and the reconciliatory interest, can at most be implicitly co-reflected in the attempt to ground pragmatism. This avenges itself through a deficit of realism and concreteness. The transcendental polemic, as well as eroticism, which I do not present in this book, inserts additional dimensions into the network of a prioriistic, epistemically guiding and forming interests. In war, we encounter a combination of motives of labour and interaction that cannot at all be comprehended logically with the schematism employed until now. I maintain that polemical strategic action and thinking, which are treated by the aforementioned authors only as an addendum and in passing, in fact forms a dimension that encompasses not only the action of labour and governing, but also communicative action. This is not taken sufficiently into account by either the older or the more recent critical theory. Neither a critique of instrumental reason nor a critique of functionalist reason discloses the connection between strategy and cynicism that we here present as the philosophical signature of modernity. Labour and interaction are from the very beginning crisscrossed by war and eros, enmities and reconciliations, decimations and creations. Whatever is supposed to be recognised in the interest of labour and interaction from the very start, and always, receives a theory form that is also stamped by the polemical or the erotic. What kind of objectivity is chosen is emphatically no innocent alternative. It also makes a categorical difference which form of precision is decided on, the precision of the polemicist or that of the lover. If that is really an a priori alternative, there must be a twofold science of all things, and not one basically neutral theory that then, secondarily as we say, can be used for good or evil purposes. Whereas pragmatism formally assumes a homogeneous community of researchers, the transcendental polemical view allows us to examine the war of the researchers as the condition of that which they work out their truths. as the condition of that which they work out as truths. Thus, research is not so much a means for a neutral illumination of reality 
as an arms race in theoretical forms. The insights then appear more as weapons than as intellectual instruments at the service of labour and communicative understanding. And taken in their aggregate, they constitute not an intellectual treasure or encyclopedia, but an arsenal, a munitions depot of intelligent cartridges. If we wanted to remain content with a priori interests such as labour and interaction, we would have to refrain from interrogating this labour and this interaction as to which struggle they serve and which reconciliations they facilitate. In other words, whether the researcher ego confronts the object from the stance of generalisation, distancing and domination, or from that of individualisation, closeness and surrender. From this viewpoint, the distinction between the two cultures once again makes sense. In the first culture, which predominates, we excuse me, predominates, we observe a primacy of method, of procedure, of the research process over the objects. Here, only that can be an object that falls into the domain covered by the methods and models. If we attribute everything of a methodological nature to the subject, we can speak of a type of knowledge that issues from an elevation of the knower over what is known. The primacy of the subject, that this curiously enough holds for the exact and objective, or better, objectivistic disciplines, illustrates the connection between determination of the object, objects feststellung, and the displacement, dissimulation of the subject, subject verstellung. This elevation is the price of objectivity. At the same time, it is procured at the cost of a methodological constriction or standardisation of what the subject is allowed or not allowed to know. The idea that all real sciences in the end will only have a correct theory as a problem presupposes at the same time the expectation that the so-called community of researchers in the long run will grow together into an homogeneous army of subjects who will all be stamped by the same methodological displacement or dissimulation with regards to the quote-unquote things. Only when the subjects are epistemologically standardised same interest, same concepts, same methods, do the statements about the objects coagulate into their final and correct shape, in the sense of these presuppositions. The one cannot be had without the other. Where several hypotheses still stand beside one another, a weakness on the side of the subject is uncovered, and the subject of weakness gives the things a chance to reveal themselves in their multiple meanings. Stated to the point, the weaker our methods the better it is for the things. As long as there is a multitude of interpretations, the things are safe from the delusion of the knowers that they had fixed the objects, as known, once and for all. As long as the things are being interpreted, the memory is also kept alive that the things are also something an sich in themselves, that has nothing to do with their being known by us. If we follow this thought to its extreme, we come to the diametrically opposed pole of forms of knowledge. Here, what Adorno called the precedence of the object holds. If, with the primary of the subject, the agonistic theory must necessarily arise, then, from a way of treating things that acknowledges the precedence of objects, something comes forth that may bear the name erotic theory. Where Eros is at play, there, and only there, does the second culture live, and where it is alive it assumes the form of an art rather than a technique. 
artists and eroticists to live under the impression that the things want something from them rather than that they want something from the things and that it is the things that entangle them in the adventure of experience. They go to the things, surrender themselves to their impression and as true researchers feel themselves under their spell. For artists and eroticists, the things are the river into which, according to Heraclitus, they cannot enter twice because the things, although they are the same things, are new in every moment, having flowed further into a new relationship. If love is new every morning, the objects of love, along with it, are also new. In them there is nothing known, at most familiar. With them there is no objectivity, only intimacy. If the knower approaches them, it is not as master researcher, forsch herr, but as neighbour, friend, as someone who has been drawn in. For lovers, the things are beautiful, and that they know that the relationship is over when one day everything looks as if it had always been the same, constant, every day, identical, predictable. Where the sense for beauty ceases, war, indifference or death begins. Translator's note, gleich, gültigkeit, literally equal validity. Philosophers have rightly taught that the aesthetic dimension is integral for the truth content, for the truth content of realizations. This refers, of course, to realizations that have submitted themselves to the precedence of the object. Enlightenment, however, has taught us to mistrust such insights deeply. For enlightenment, if it does not continually correct itself against erotic, aesthetic experience, the objects are the quintessence of that to which we should not surrender ourselves trustingly, because both trust and surrender are stances that the compulsions of life and enlightened realism force out of us. Precedence of the objects would mean to be forced to live with a power over us, and because we, quasi-automatically, identify everything that is above us with that which oppresses us, from the viewpoint of this unenlightened enlightenment, there can be, on the contrary, only a stance of polemical distance. Nevertheless, there is another kind of precedence that is not based on subjugation. The precedence the object enjoys in sympathetic understanding does not demand that we reconcile ourselves to an inferiority and an alienated position. Its prototype is love. The ability to concede the object a precedence would be, a, would be tantamount to the ability to live and let live, instead of live and let die. And indeed, as an ultimate consequence, also to die and let live, instead of following the impulse to pull everything down into death with us. Only through eros do we become capable of conceding the object a precedence. And even if I cease to be, Eros wills that something remain. <laughs>